The Ringer NBA show is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the Ringer Podcast Network. Looking for a better way to bet on your favorite sports online? With FanDuel Sportsbook, there are more ways to bet. If you could dream it, you can probably bet it through FanDuel Sportsbook. FanDuel offers spreads, parlays, money lines, over-under, props, and in-game bets, all in an easy-to-use app. There are more ways to cash out. When you win, you can receive your winnings in your bank account in as little as 48 hours through a safe and secure process. Check out FanDuel Sportsbook app today to experience sports betting the way it always should have been. FanDuel, more ways to win. 21 plus and present in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Indiana, or Colorado. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In Indiana, call 1-800-9-WITH-IT or in Colorado, call 1-800-522-4700. Now to group chat. Basketball is very good. Hello and welcome to Group Chat, the Ringer's weekly NBA group discussion where we talk about everything from playoff rondo to mutual parting of ways. I'm Justin Verrier. It is 9.30 a.m. Pacific time, and we're going to try to get through this podcast without any technical difficulties. Sorry for the last few. Uh, those were pretty much all my fault. But joining me today, Jonathan Charks. What's up, guys? Rob Mahoney. Hello. And our special guest, our first acclaimed author on this <laughs> podcast, from The Athletic, Ethan Sherwood Strauss. What is up, my friend? I come to you from the literary world. You're welcome. <laughs> you are wearing glasses, which I, I equate to being intelligent. So Let's close it up. Close enough. Okay, so we're going to talk about a lot of things here. Uh, we're going to get to the Lakers and the Rockets, Game 3. We're going to talk about Billy Donovan. But first, we need to talk about Giannis because apparently this is a pretty big deal. Uh, last night, the Bucks were officially ejected from the NBA playoffs. Uh, they lost 104 to 94 to Miami. Uh, Zach Cram has been tracking some of the biggest upsets in recent playoff history. It is the eighth biggest series upset since the field expanded to 16 teams. We'll get to talking about the heat and actual basketball, but I want to speculate wildly to start with. Um, and let's start here because, because I, I think this is really interesting. After the game... Uh, after the loss, Giannis didn't play in last night. He talked to Chris Haynes of Yahoo Sports, basically said that he was committed to staying in Milwaukee. Uh, a specific quote here is, some see a wall and go in, in brackets, another direction. Uh, I plow through it. We just have to get better as a team individually and get right back at it next season. So I think this is interesting because ultimately, a lot of free agency talk just comes down to how much we believe someone like it really becomes just a guessing game about someone's interests and like what motivates them as a person. Uh, but this is the first time where I find myself kind of ignoring my bullshit detector, where I think that like maybe Giannis like has a point here. Maybe he's being genuine. Uh, Ethan, when you hear Giannis saying these things, do you believe him at all? Yeah, at least in the short term. And I think sometimes we can be too cynical or at least not understand how to read people. And we can say this happens in politics, too, where we'll say, oh, politicians lie about everything. Yeah, but it's way more likely that a politician is going to enact a policy that he's talking about than one that he isn't talking about. It sets a certain pretext. It sets certain expectations. So even if we do have these examples where KD in Oklahoma City was saying one thing, but he did the other thing, I still think that this this is something that has to make you feel great if you're a Bucks fan, um, if you're a Warriors fan or one of these other teams that wants to have a hostile takeover of sorts. Uh, it has to dampen your expectations and it is very explicit. He's explicitly saying that he's not going to do it. I think that's that's quite the development. And if I'm going to, hey, here's how you read people. There are a lot of signs. If I'm hearkening back to Kevin Durant and the Warriors that he was going to leave. But one of the main signs is he never said he was going to stay. And as much as fans who wanted him to stay were rationalizing this or that, uh, when he would be asked about it, it was this defensive, why are you asking me about it? Blah, 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 blah. If Kevin Durant had just said, no, this is ridiculous, I'm coming back to the Warriors, then it would have been a totally different story in terms of the expectations. So I do think this sets expectations. It doesn't mean that he's staying through 
I don't know the uh, the the through a whole season, and it doesn't mean that he won't test free agency, but at least you can probably shove aside for a while the idea that he's going to force a trade. I mean, I don't think it's going to stop the thirsty photoshops. I don't think it's going to stop <laughs> a lot of the rampant speculation. And certainly if you're a team like Miami, a team like Toronto, these teams that have been openly kind of linked to Giannis in terms of his free agency in 2021, I don't think it changes that trajectory at all. What it does do is is kind of reshape the interim, right? We're looking at at least the Bucks have one more season to see what they have, to see how far they can go, to see what they can tweak. That's a meaningful thing. A year is a long time, though. And, you know, when you look at the KD situation, when you look back at LeBron leaving Cleveland in the first place, or even a guy like Dwight Howard in Orlando, I kind of, I don't think they were even lying per se if when they said, I love it here, I want to stay here, I want to make my career here, you know, things to that effect before ultimately leaving. I think guys just change their mind and they, they're given new evidence, they're shown new things. This is, you know, this playoff run is one big piece of evidence for Giannis. I think it's it's a right, you know, an area to be rightfully concerned. But now you have a whole nother year to show him we can evolve beyond that. And that's going to be the most meaningful thing you can have leading into his free agency. What cracked me about that quote was talking about, I just plow through a wall. Maybe stop at a pull-up jump shot. I don't know. <laughs> right. right. There might there be a better strategy. There was the style of play metaphor in there. And you also wonder if uh, <laughs> if the, the roster is the wall to which he refers. Uh, and I mean, that's the, that's the other thing. So the positivity, the Bucks positivity is, of course, you can maybe hold off on him forcing a trade in an ugly Anthony Davis situation ensuing. But there are these questions of how do the Bucks get better? I don't know where you guys come down on, on this whole thing, but the analytics community or just smart people who know basketball really saw them as a title contender. I didn't. I never thought they had it. I, I they just they're they're just not that to me. And I don't know if if I'm being wrong or if the probabilities it was just a probability game or a matchup thing, but they just don't look like they have enough. And I do have questions about how they would get there. I think they could have enough to get to a finals, but it is hard to look at them and go, yeah, that's a championship team. Given the aforementioned uh, Giannis holes in his game as great as he is and the holes in the roster. Yeah, I mean, if Giannis, if we do take him at face value, if we do believe him, the situation is kind of unprecedented in the paradigm that LeBron has kind of set up where the Bucks might be in the situation where they are the team trying to build the super team with the one star. They are looking for the other pieces in order to complement it as opposed to trying to hold on to this guy and basically as soon as he doesn't sign the extension, uh, uh, they're forced to kind of get rid of him and think more toward a rebuild. The problem is I just look at the Bucks roster and specifically there's the asset load and I don't necessarily see where they could really find anything that works. I think this ultimately becomes a Chris Paul conversation. And so on the one hand, I think Chris Paul would help them in the interim. If he can continue to play this well at age 35, let's say, and then he'll be into age 36 when he accepts his player option the following year, that might help for next season. But there's really like a stealing from Peter to pay Paul, like, like literally sort of thing going on here where like the problem would then become the the runway. It would become the next season because then your future would be completely just thrown into whack. And then all of a sudden, maybe he like Giannis would actually have a, a better reason in order to leave. I don't know. It just, it's like there aren't easy any any easy answers here, even though I think Paul probably makes the most sense right now. Well, I think Paul comes up in part because we've identified the problem with the, at least the starting lineup, with the, which is that Eric Bledsoe just isn't good enough or a good enough fit with this group. Like, I think Chris Middleton is good enough to be a part of a kind of star core with Giannis, but like, you need more and more complementary talents out of that point guard spot than Bledsoe is giving you right now. And so he becomes the natural trade piece. And a guy like Paul, who's just an expert at managing games, becomes a really natural candidate for that fit. I think, too, with Paul, one thing I would like about him, I think he would call Budden on some of his stuff. He'd be like, Buddenholzer, play your best players more minutes. I'm Chris Paul. That's stupid. We're not doing this anymore. Like, to me, I would can Bud tomorrow, honestly. I think he's a very limited coach. And I think they're honestly going to spend money, too. Going to luxury tax, going to get a title contender. I mean, that's the next question, right? If it isn't Paul, if it isn't some, like, superstar X that comes and play with them, like, should Bud just go? Is that enough in order to change, like, what ails him? I mean, to me, he's Scott Brooks. He ain't good enough. 
Whoa. Wow. Whoa. I, lo- I, mean, I love Jark's takes, man. <laughs> Jark's just, he doesn't mince words. He just comes with it. And I'm not, I'm not saying whoa isn't, that's an insane idea. It's just, it's, it's strong. It's strong. I, I look, I obviously, I wouldn't say that Bud is Scott Brooks just because he implemented a system and a way of playing that elevated the franchise. But there are those coaches that can take you from D to B, but maybe not take you from B to A. And he might be that guy just because of how conservative he is in the playoffs, how he doesn't seem to make the necessary adjustments again and again and again. And I don't know what that block is. I don't know why he does that. But theoretically, you could have a coach who can have the Bucks play in a similar style, but can also be flexible enough to make the adjustments when, when needed. Yeah, I mean, he's I think the Vi- Bud... I was just going to say he's the Vinny Del Negro of this situation. <laughs> wow, we are killing Bud. Today. Probably more Dwayne Casey, actually. He's Dwayne Casey. He has a good system, a good culture. Good but he call. needs an aggressive coach to kind of come in the, at the, for the final step, a Nick Nurse type. I mean, we're talking about an excellent regular season coach. Like one of the best regular season coaches in basketball when I look out at the field of candidates, and there's a lot of good coaching candidates out there for teams at various stages, who is the good playoff coach of that group? Like, even if you're a Mike D'Antoni person, his record is mixed. I mean, Ty Lue could potentially be a candidate, but there I would seems love to be that. A, I mean, there seems to be a lot of heat between Ty and Philly and connection there. So if that happens or not, maybe he's a candidate. But like, you know, Billy Donovan's now available. Is he the playoff coach of your dreams? Kenny Atkinson, like it, or if you're looking at an assistant like like a Mike Brown or a Steven Silas or a Chris Finch, like none of these guys are screaming, we're gonna take a great regular season team over the top, except for maybe Ty Lu, who may already be spoken for. Who was Nick Nurse last year or two years ago? That's fair. Mm. That's fair. But Nick, but Nick Nurse is special, man. I mean, Nick Nurse is like a top three coach. I, I, I don't know if maybe there are a bunch of Nick Nurses growing on trees. Maybe, maybe. I just don't know if everybody is going to have that kind of impact on a team and frankly be that bold. I mean, that's what's great about Nick Nurse is that he takes risks, man. He does. He does interesting strategic uh, shifts within a playoff series. I don't know if I don't know if they have some assistant on staff who can do that. I'm I'm imagining Nick nurses growing on trees with their personalized hats, like an <laughs> and they just drop from the hat when they're ready. They got to a throw. guitar hanging on the side, yeah. <laughs> a couple zip up polos. Uh, yeah, I I feel like if we're saying we need like a coaching savant in order to solve this situation, we're already like in a bad place. I I think I mean I do wonder like what specifically like what quality specifically do the Bucks really need in an ex coach because Bucks uh, Bud system worked in the regular season they won sixty games and they were far and away the best team there are statistics that like suggest that they were one of the better teams in recent history just based on um, just plus minus and all this other stuff but now like what do you need in the playoffs in order to take them to the next level. Do you need a tactician? Do you need someone like Lou who could speak to your stars and ask them to do different things? Like, I don't know what the answer is. I guess I would say they look limited in terms of roster. Do you think the roster is the ceiling or are you more trending towards the coaches the ceiling? I guess it's kind of both, really. I mean, they should have kept Brogdon, obviously, looking back on it. They had some <laughs> quote. I was like, oh, he's a he's a luxury. We come up with Wesley Matthews and Kyle Korver, like, that's a very bold take that did not really age well. But I would say for a coach, how about a coach who plays his best players a lot of minutes? Let's start with that. Like, like that's not too much to ask for. <laughs> yeah, the Brogdon thing is funny because it's almost become like the original sin for for the Bucks, And it's also become uh, the only thing that anybody wants to talk about online. <laughs> well, just the uh, optics are so bad, right? Like, it just looks so bad. It's not, right. it's not defensible. There's also like a really interesting ancillary conversation about like risk management in terms of injuries that's going on right now, where it feels like the like Denver with Michael Porter Jr., uh, the Pacers with Brogdon. There's a few other examples, but like I wonder at what point the injury risk is like worth it, especially for a player like Brogdon, where you're basically trading a fringe All Star level player for the possibility to add more, and it looks particularly bad now because we're saying, hey the Bucks need assets in order to get another guy next to Giannis. This first round pick from the Pacers should be like that asset. If you're not going to get something in order to get the next guy, you've kind of like almost wrapped yourself in this no-win situation, basically. Well, he also, not getting Brogdon, also kind of backs them into a corner now. 
And, you know, like we fetishize as a media collective, like the idea of flexibility, probably, more, you know, be way beyond its value. But if you have a guy like Giannis and you run into a wall roster wise, you're kind of stuck. And like they have a couple picks they can trade, but like having Brogdon is valuable for having Brogdon. Like they're a better team today. Maybe the series is still going on if he's on the roster, but also that's a big contract you can now throw into a trade to get another potential star and a guy who has inherent value versus, you know, if you're throwing Ursan Ilyasova into deals and Eric Bledsoe and, you know, let's get George Hill's contract in here. Like those are not net positive pieces. Malcolm Brogdon is a good player who's on a deal that could get you another star if you needed to trade him. That's where the Bucks kind of blew it and where I think they got a little bit too cute in terms of managing their finances. Like one thing I'm wondering, like if you look at Chris Paul, would you rather trade him to Philadelphia or Milwaukee for Oklahoma City? I feel like Philly has more assets. Well, what, is the, what does the package look like coming back from Philly? So, uh, Thibel, Shake Milton, some picks, and like Tobias Harris. Or, I don't know. Yeah, because the best the bus can do is DiVincenzo in terms of like actual young players you could build around. And I, I, I think we could all probably agree that Thibel would be head and shoulders above it. They don't need draft picks, right? And that's really what the Bucks can offer him. Well, I think if you're the Thunder and you're looking at a deal with the Bucks, you're looking at those 2024 or 2046 or, or, or 2024. Why not, 2026. Why not 2046? That's I mean, future why, assets. <laughs> that's the true Sam Presti vision. But like those those two picks, like trying to get them like an Agoran Dragic, like unprotected, like deep future firsts, basically betting on Giannis to leave. Like that's what you're doing if you're if you're looking at this kind of trade package. Yeah. Well, I think one thing. That, that could be interesting here is I wonder if the willingness to spend becomes an advantage like it had been in baseball. So we're going to talk about Oklahoma City later. And it seems like in part because of the financial crunch that's coming, the Thunder no longer want to be a contender. They probably are going to get rid of some of their high level guys. I do wonder if a team like the Bucks, if they, they would have to figure out the math and it's a little complicated, but if they just wanted to like take contracts on like Let's say that the Thunder couldn't get rid of Schroeder in addition to Paul. I don't know how the math would work specifically, but if there's a situation where they could just take on a lot of long-term money, accept the long-term risk, and all of a sudden, that is now a new advantage in this marketplace. They should be willing to. I'm not an expert on their finances, but they're run by... They're run by people in private equity, yes? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not making that up. Hedge fund guys, fu- yeah. Yeah, hedge fund guys. And so there's a financial disaster imminent for the NBA, of course. But you would think that it's a little bit offset by certain owners having their money in industries that have been oddly untouched. The stock market um, has been surging, seemingly decoupled from the rest of the economy. So some of these owners who are in private equity and in real estate and, and other ventures, I think, are insulated versus Tillman Fertitta. Not so insulated, owning hotels and casinos and restaurants. And uh, Joe Lacob of the Warriors, even if he's a venture capitalist, I think has been fairly over leveraged into uh, building the Chase Center with private money and then not being able to make any money off of it. So I, I, it seems like theoretically, even though they cheaped out on Brogdon, that the people running the bucks should be able to absorb some financial hits if they want to be competitive. Yeah, I think the other question here is, if not Paul, then who? Like, do you guys look around the league and free agency seems a little bleak at this point and it seems like the few players who are going to hit the market might cash in simply because there's just no one else to go for. Like, Who else could they even trade or what do they even really need at this point in order to fix what they have? Is there a way for them to get in on a potential Brad Beal conversation? Mm, I like a Brad Beal conversation. I don't see how. I mean, they just yeah. have any pieces to move. I mean, they can get in on a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> they can have a conversation. I, I like think the MVP more, conversation I, would be short. I, I love that with MVP. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he shouldn't be MVP, but he should be part of the conversation. Okay, <laughs> it's like why are we having a conversation if he's not the MVP? But yeah, they could they could have a discussion of Bradley Beal. It's just not going to turn into Bradley Beal necessarily. It would be the Bradley Beal MVP discussion of, of the Bradley Beal trade talks. <laughs> so, someone more like uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich. That's probably the kind of guy they could get with their assets. Well, what about Gallo? What if he becomes... He would probably have to take a discount in free agency because I believe the Bucks have the non-taxpayer mid-level exception available to them this summer, which maybe could buy someone decent, but 
could Gallo become like the new Miritich for them? Miritich like actually playing well <laughs> for them. And all of a sudden you have a little bit more stretch. Maybe Brooke Lopez when he's not shooting uh, threes as well as he did at some points uh, this season. Ultimately, he becomes that answer. Yeah, I don't think he's the new Miritich. I think he's the flex Brooke Lopez. Like that's a, if, if, if you're taking yeah. a look at Gallinari, that's what you're saying. We want to play Giannis at center a lot or we're going to wing it with Gallo at center essentially. Wow. I like that idea. I mean, what do they need most though? Do they need a creator like Paul? Or do we, they need another wing defender? Do they need a big who isn't just like Brooke Lopez, who just like runs at the speed of of like with gravity boots on? Essentially, I don't know. <laughs> well, I don't even think Brooke is their problem. They need they need people who are calm in half court offenses under pressure, and they need people who can hit shots. And like Chris I mean, Paul is both of those things. I would say like any team, they need big wings who can defend and shoot. Right? That's that's goal in the NBA. Get those guys; you're always in good shape. So the darkest timeline here creeps up pretty quickly. So if the Bucks can't make this work, then all of a sudden he gets traded to the Warriors. Is that right, Ethan? <laughs> I, I I almost think it's hard to see that. It's just it's just hard to see that. It's not the buzz recently, and you've got the Masai, you've got the Masai connection uh, for Toronto. I mean, I think look, it, it is about whatever Giannis wants, right? That's that's how I see it. Superstars make the league; they call their own shot. People have said before that if he did choose the Warriors that, oh, that's impossible. It won't happen. The the, the package isn't a dude. It's really about the superstar saying, I want to be there and I'm not playing for anybody else. And I'm willing to tank my value for anybody else. So you better get it done now. If he took that tack, then it would happen. I'm not seeing much, many signs right now that that's how he wants to play it. But we do seem to be in an era right now of me agency or whatever you want to call what free agency is of, look, I can take my value to anybody else. And if you trade me there, you'll get something. This is the threat. This is what Anthony Davis did. And what few people talk about is that Anthony Davis is so much better for doing it. You know, maybe we want some morality play to happen where we go, oh, this guy did this very unpopular, ugly thing and it worked out bad for him. Don't be like him. But Anthony Davis has provided an example to the other superstars in the league that theoretically you can do the worst things possible for your public relations and you can uh, completely anger any fan locally and still on the other end of it, as long as you wound up on the right team and you're competing for a championship. Um, so long as you didn't exit a team that has a fervent fan base like Oklahoma City, uh, if you exit, say, a New Orleans or some of these other teams, we're all going to shrug and just forget about it. It worked out well for Anthony Davis. And you have to wonder, do other superstars take that lesson? I mean, he also did it and he's winning. Like it, yes. it, again, that's that's the contradiction here, where it's yeah. like he did this thing that is kind of inherently selfish in terms of the way he exited the Pelicans, and he did it. I, you know, I'm, I'm not assuming his exact motivations, but like the end result is he's winning a lot more than he ever has, and he's on a team that's a lot more relevant than his teams have ever been. It was also like it was easy to tell that Anthony Davis was full of shit at this point. Like there's a huge <laughs> distinction. Let between- the hate out, Barrier. Let the hate out. That's all, folks. <laughs> No, I, I completely agree with, with what Rob is saying. If AD wanted to go to the Lakers and play with LeBron, like more power to you. Like I, he's definitely better off for him. Um, we're going to talk about that later. But you could definitely tell, like even as he was trying to say the right things, there was like this tinge of like, I don't know if this guy, like we can believe this guy. There's like this really funny story amongst beat writers where Anthony Davis, like, they had All-Star New Orleans and he became the unofficial ambassador for All-Star Weekend in air quotes. And so he just started like making up stuff about like how he liked gumbo all of a sudden. <laughs> and he's like, uh, it has that it has that little <laughs> spice. And so now me and some of the beat writers always say that back to each other <laughs> because it was like <laughs> it was like the point where you could tell that he was trying way too hard. Whereas with Giannis, like at, to funny. circle back to the earlier discussion, like he seems genuine. I don't know if it's because of like residual effect of him coming into the league as this like adorable guy who like loved smoothies and this was great and everything was so fun and like we built up that kind of association with him. Or I do wonder if because he doesn't have the relationships that some of these star players have, the fact that he isn't close personal friends with Devin Booker, like Carl Anthony Towns is, like D'Angelo Russell is, that there really isn't as much of an easy pathway to getting to like an Anthony Davis situation or like even bringing someone onto his team because 
quite frankly, this is like a relationship business, even amongst the stars. And he probably just doesn't really have those type of relationships. I think it's fair to say. I mean, Kawhi didn't seem to have those relationships and he still got out. So it, it can be done, although I do think there's something to what you're saying. I love you pointing out that Anthony Davis was reflecting back to people what people wanted from him. That's such an NBA thing. That's such an NBA thing. And you can extrapolate way beyond just local taste. I think that there's just often a worldview that players are lying to people about and reflecting back to the audience because it's what they want to hear or it's what social media wants to hear. And if you're on the ground in the NBA, you quickly learn that they're all liars. It's all Hollywood. It's all completely phony, completely phony. Uh, so I, I, I like you noting that. I, I think that's a thing, the lack of the AAU connection. But he does seem, again, he has that relationship with Steph Curry. I don't know if it actually amounts to anything. He does seem to have that very close relationship with Masai. I don't know if it amounts to anything. So I do think that Giannis has relationships, theoretically, that could propel him out of there. It's just about whether or not he wants to take on the ugly exit. All I'm saying is there's a team with two European stars under 25 with a lot of cap space next summer. Luca, get his number, please. Start texting. Get on those Skype calls. Well, now I have to look up whether uh, Slovenia and Greece have any issues and um, <laughs> how that all comes into play. It does really come down to that. I mean, Ethan, you've been in this situation before, and I think it's really instructive to look back on this sort of thing. Like, at what point do you feel like the Katie to the Warriors thing became real? Like, were you seeing signs this early where Giannis is? Yeah, uh, I, I would say so. I think it became almost finalized in in winter of that season is when it became sealed. But yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember. It's It's almost hard to remember when did this start to become something that many people expected. And we often do this. Uh, creeping determinism, as it's called, where something that was totally unexpected, we look back on as obvious because we're pattern-making beings and we like to feel secure in the events of the world. So we convince ourselves that we all we all saw something coming that we didn't necessarily see coming. I, I know I was talking about it with people around the winter time. Now, was it an expectation in that summer leading up to it? I don't think so. I don't think at that point I was saying, oh yeah, that's going to happen or yeah that's that's a floated possibility so this is probably earlier than when KD to the Warriors became completely real um and it's still early there's still time for the Bucks to uh improve their situation I think we're just all looking at it from the perspective of I don't know how they're going to get it done well and correct me if I'm wrong Ethan but it seems like I hear more about the Steph Giannis connection relationship. I mean, maybe it's just because he threw an alley oop to him at the All Star game, but like, <laughs> oh, they do a lot of public flirting, man. They those there's a lot of public flirting. Again, it might add up to nothing. It might mean absolutely nothing. If Giannis right now is saying that, hey, I'm not forcing any kind of trade, then that is the theoretical avenue through which the Warriors would get him. So. I, I almost weigh that more so than the public flirting, but I think the public flirting adds a lot to it. And who knows why Giannis does that? Maybe he has fun teasing the audience. I'm not sure, but I think a lot of it's based on that and the fact that they share an agency. Well, and, and all to say, I, I don't remember that between Steph and KD. Like, I, I don't remember them having any kind of public relationship in that way. They've never really had it. They've never really been close. It was a situation where people had to come to Steph and say, hey, are you cool with this? Are you okay with bringing Katie into it? But definitely Draymond was way more the emissary to Kevin Durant to uh, help get that done. And yeah, I don't I don't think that that relationship, frankly, ever became tight either uh, before or afterwards. Um, cordial, you know, they hugged each other right before the pandemic hit when uh, when I was in Brooklyn. So there, there was that. But again, as we all say, as I was just saying, the NBA, phony business, <laughs> very <laughs> phony business. Well, I, I, I mean, I think what we're getting at is that ultimately the plan is to recruit Steph Curry to the Bucks. Like it, we got, we got the, <laughs> the pursuit here backwards. I think that's the next move for Milwaukee. 
I don't think that's going to happen. I I, I just Rats. don't think that's probably going to happen. That would be a shocker. That would be interesting. <laughs> I don't even know how we'd absorb that as as sports media. <laughs> I don't think people would be that angry at Steph. It would just be really. <laughs> On the flip side, though, Ethan, is there anything worse in media than following a, a superstar who might switch teams? Well, if you get yelled at in a press conference, it's suboptimal. <laughs> I guess that was the the flip side of that. Yeah, it's uh, that 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 was suboptimal. I mean, it gets annoying because the fans are on edge, and the fans are uh, often. And I'm not condescending to the fans. I say the fans. There's a range of opinions among fans. I think we get into a danger in our position of acting like we are at a level above them and they're idiots and we are edifying them with our knowledge and they just won't hear. I don't, I don't want to say that, but there is a contingent of fans who don't want the guy to leave. And so they are wish casting and they are pretending him back into the fold. And there's this annoying tension where you're trying to say, look, at least in the case of Kevin Durant, have you guys noticed, have you guys noticed that he's never saying that he's coming back, that that's <laughs> never happening. He's never going, not only that, in the case of Kevin Durant, there was never any in the press conferences, man, my teammates are good. They are, they're, they're really good. <laughs> they, they, that wasn't even happening. I and love so, Andre Roberson. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, so it's often what they're not saying and trying to read between the lines on behalf of the customer can sometimes get a little bit frustrating. And especially the, the the superstar tends to get mad. And there's a little bit doth protest too much. The whole thing is awkward and ugly, uh, which is why I suggest getting a book deal out of it if you can. You know, get something out of it. <laughs> well, I, I just like Ethan, Ethan stepping down from the ivory tower and trying to become a man of the people by appealing to all these different <laughs> fan sensibilities here. It's it's a good play. Uh, yeah, well, you know, it's uh, they, that's the... Call me populist Strauss for a reason, I suppose. <laughs> no, I, I try to I try to guard against it. I worry about it's it funny. sometimes. I think it's really easy because we get feedback that's totally insane and annoying to then define the fan by that and then start talking to all fans as though they are that idiot or not even that idiot, maybe just that emotionally motivated person. So I'm just trying to guard against my own tendencies because it can be an easy trap to fall into. The, the feedback that I usually get is I don't know anything. So I actually feel really grounded in my takes. <laughs> I, I, I know exactly as much as everyone else. Um, I want to talk, I want to talk about the heat though, because I don't know if you guys noticed, but they actually won the series. What? Uh, um, so I thought it was interesting. Like it almost became like this big conversation or almost like a series about how we use centers in the modern NBA. Giannis obviously literally like, crashed into a wall several times. Um, and we didn't get to see him ultimately kind of bounce back for that because he was injured uh, the last two games. And then obviously he went out. Um, but Bam, on the other hand, definitely flourished. Uh, this was a big series for Bam. Uh, Charks, what did you see? And we could call this our abridged version of Nerd Corner because I don't... I knew it was a Jark's take in the group chat. <laughs> I, I knew it. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt. Right, I guess I for the record, that, it's um, it's Charks. So Charks. CH. I'm sorry. <laughs> was, I, I say it with a G. You know, I, I, I took years to get Giannis. I've heard it all. This is becoming like a new Patreon where where Ethan is like just getting Sharks takes for free. <laughs> like on this podcast. Look, it was a great look, it was a great take by Sharks. It was <laughs> no, no. Once again, once again, start start over. <laughs> CH. It was a, Jonathan had an incredible take. No, I just knew it. When I saw that strategic and I I I wrote about it and I was writing on that topic. I I will stop filibustering and interrupting. I just I I know I know how your mind works. So when I saw that, I knew that came from you, and it's a fascinating topic. Go on. Well, there you go. Um, so basically, I thought the hidden move Miami made in Game One of last series—they benched Myers Leonard and Kelly Olynyk. They played Bam at the five full time, and they started Jay Crowder. So now instead of playing, yeah, and this is between the, the Bucks too, right? So now instead of having a stretch big in this hybrid four and three guards. You have a hybrid five and four guards. I think that made them so much more dangerous, just having that extra flexibility. And obviously, like Crowder couldn't miss for a couple of games. That was really nice too. But I think I think I look, I say, if Bam can play 40 minutes at center, why can't Giannis or AD, right? I just feel like it's obvious when you watch them play, it's more effective. I just think the strategic implications are interesting. And what I the the idea that 
it was more devastating for Bam to be at the five than for Bam to be at the four alongside a stretch five. I do think that that's not isolated. And I do think that's where the league is going. And in a weird way, these bigs like Brooke Lopez, not, uh, these, these bigs like Brooke Lopez who are lumbering, but they're at least stretching the floor, that adds something, but it almost in a way hastens their demise of their role because the right way to guard that is not with a guy like Brooke Lopez. It's with a guy like Bam. So even if they are adjusting to the modern NBA as these behemoths and adding the stretch, they're still part of this phenomenon that is um, delegitimizing them or marginalizing them in the future because it just seems like the future is speed and versatility and swarming on defense versus big and slow. It's always an advantage to be big. I mean, to be clear, it's with all things being equal, it's good to be big. But in the trade-off game, it seems like in the NBA, it's trending more towards uh, speed and agility um, and less towards size. I mean, the secret with the Brook Lopez types too, defenses don't treat those guys like shooters. They don't respect them. Like, you're going to live with Brook Lopez, you know, occasionally hitting some corner threes, punishing you for overextending in other ways. But like, the value of a shooter is what it does to the rest of your defense. And I think there are maybe two or three actual bigs in the league who are who hit threes at a rate that's high enough and are able to get their release off quick enough where you have to actually guard them like you would a shooting wing. And so that changes the math on all this stuff and really distorts the value. You know, again, in the regular season, it can look really good. It can look like it's spacing the floor. It can look like it's helping you. And then in the playoffs, those guys don't get guarded in the same way and it disrupts your entire offense. Rob, you had that great piece last week about playmaking bigs. You kind of want to like just give it a quick spiel on that because that was what I thought kind of laid it out pretty well. Yeah, I think if you look at it, it's, it taps into a lot of what we've been talking about. The state of the league, the direction of the league, it's kind of shifting from being very pick-and-roll oriented to being very dribble handoff and handoff oriented, and that favors guys like Bam, who can make plays, who can make reads as the offense goes back and forth around him. That's where the power center of the NBA is right now. And so you want guys who can keep some fluidity to your offense, who can improvise, who can do all the things that help you over the course of a seven-game series as the other team is constantly adapting to you. You want those kind of intuitive centers versus these pieces who are just entirely reactive, like a Brook Lopez, like a spot-up shooter. That player, it, it, like to Ethan's point, I think is being marginalized on both sides of the floor. You're taking away a lot of the value of having size if you're just parking them on the outside. But Bam, on the other hand, can fake a handoff, turn a corner, and get a dunk if he needs to. Like the proximity to the basket combined with the playmaking, that's the future of the center position to me. Ethan, another thing I was thinking about, we talk about like Draymond types a lot, and most guys aren't like, like most guys aren't that, but I feel like Bam actually has a Draymond type. Can you say that in his game? Yeah, I, I I think so, and it's um I'm I'm trying to make fetch happen here, but I'm calling this new position in the NBA the Draymond position, the Bam position. They're fours, you know, they're not quite a five in the traditional sense, and they are the size of a forward. Um, they are a weird hybrid that has become oddly perhaps more powerful than the traditional lumbering five. Now, still, as as Draymond himself said. If you're Jokic, if you're Embiid, if you're Cat, if you're one of these guys, you still have immense value, obviously. But at least in terms of players who are not uh, just completely overwhelming offensively as seven-footers, this seems to be the way things are going. And I do think that Bam is that Draymond comp. A lot of people were, were making that comparison, and he might even have more upside, probably does have more upside. And it really adjusts how I'm looking at the draft. I look at somebody like an Okongwu. I don't know if Okongwu has the quicks that Bam has. Um, and I don't no know. No one knows who that is, Ethan. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Ethan, we'll have, our own draft, we'll have our own draft corner talk here in a second. Is that is that yeah. the USC guy? <laughs> the USC guy, yes. The the center on USC who's, who's six Six foot nine. So you would have him over Wiseman if you're Golden State, a Kongu? I do, but a lot of people don't. And I will plead some ignorance in just Wiseman only played one game against a real team. So it's very difficult. You, you, you <laughs> don't <tough>. know. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you don't know more than you know. And so that that has to be the big caveat there. But I do wonder when I look at a, a player like that, is he that is he that guy who's going to be the able to toggle between the four and the five to guard both positions as, as we're seeing to play the, the four role as it were. 
uh, that I think is becoming the big trend in the NBA right now. It needs to be an acronym. Like, if it's BAM, <laughs> it has to stand for something. Like, ball-handling ass man, you know? <laughs> like, I mean, it's pretty obvious ba- what BAMs is. Two curse words, oh, bad BAM. Yeah, yeah sure. Right? I do think yeah. we need to get, like, four or five more people in here and really focus group Forv because this is a, <laughs> yeah. a, gr- this is a great concept with some pretty with terrible Forv, marketing. I will admit... When I wrote it, it makes way more sense. When you say it, it's awkward to say. You feel like you're speaking Welsh. <laughs> Just what are you saying? When you say Forv. It, I'm kind of into it, though. Well, I mean, this is a, a good segue into the Celtics series. Well, we'll just assume that the Celtics come out of this next series. But I guess even like if the Heat have to face the Raptors, it'd be interesting, too. Uh, is Bam, are these Forvs the key to that next series? Charks, what do you think? Yeah, to me, if you look at Miami, that's the one edge they have is Bam versus Daniel Dice or Grant Williams or even Time Lord. Like, can Bam get you 25 points against a bad matchup, right? Bam is a very good, versatile distributor defender. Can he give you 25? Because if he can, I think he gives him the edge against Boston. But I don't know if he can, though. You know, out of respect for the Raptors, I don't appreciate this line of conversation and I won't <laughs> respond to it. <laughs> Great. Uh, I think that's a good place to end it. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. Ethan is unfortunately going to leave us, but we will soldier on with Rob Charks and myself. Uh, we're going to talk about Billy Donovan being out in OKC. We're going to talk about the Lakers, uh, and much more because this is a free flowing conversation. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. Charks, Rob, Justin. All right, we're going to talk about Billy Donovan. We talked about the Chris Paul component, um, but I think this extends past Paul and into the rest of the roster and obviously into the coaching ranks here just because uh, Billy Donovan and Sam, Sam Presti decided to mutually part ways in air quotes, which I feel like is just the difference between being fired and mutually parting ways is like a relationship with Adrian Wojnarowski. It seems like at certain times, um, but the way it was painted, at least based on reports was like Billy Donovan and Sam Presti just cracked open a couple, couple brews and stared off into the sunset and like decided to have themselves a, a real heart to heart conversation. It was basically the scene from like the end of Friday night lights. I'm picturing like on top of a roof, uh, Texas but, forever, and- Justin. Texas forever. That is the theme of this pod. Um, But the specifics from Woj, and this is in his ESPN newser, with reduced uh, league revenues amid the pandemic, there remains uncertainty about how long the Thunder will continue with key veterans in place before changing course on being in playoff contention in the Western Conference. I think it's pretty easy to read between the lines here that OKC probably wants to blow it up. We talked about it earlier about maybe that's uh, just because of the way uh, the owners and finances are going to go amid this pandemic, amid this financial crunch. But uh, Rob, if you are to get rid of Chris Paul, well, let's start here, actually. In the big picture, do you think this is the right approach for the Thunder to just like kind of pack it in after this good, but you know, not great, mildly encouraging, but like, what's the long-term future sort of season? Yeah, I mean, it was always headed to this point, just given the way their roster was set up, the, the contracts of these guys. Like, this is a natural pivot point. If you weren't going to trade Chris Paul during the season over this previous season, now you're going to start looking at those considerations more seriously, along with guys like Dennis Schroeder, along with the other valuable players of your roster who aren't going to be part of the next really good Thunder team. As for the coaching position, I mean, I do buy that Billy Donovan may not have wanted whatever is next. You know, there's kind of a material difference between, you know, he's already been linked in reports to jobs like the Bulls, to a team that's building up talent that it already has, to one that's really just kind of starting to tear it down. And, you know, that's a couple years where your life is totally different as a coach. So I, I kind of buy that he might have wanted something a little different. The mutual parting of ways language, while, you know, you know, c- kind of sweet, uh, I, I kind of do buy it. It reminds me of Doc Rivers when he left Boston the first time. When he left Boston for the Clippers. Sure. It's best for both parties. I mean, but that begs the question, like, what is the right team for Billy Donovan? Because we saw, like, I think we were pretty critical, maybe not us specifically, but just in the broad sense, like, pretty critical of how he managed some of the superstar-driven Thunder teams. They played well, but they got beat in that 3-1 series. So... I, like, what is the right team for him? Can he stand up to a Ben Simmons and, and a Joel Embiid? Does he have that sort of sway now because of his years with Russ? And uh, he's been in the league like a pretty long time, like under the radar. Or is he better for the Bulls who like 
let's be honest, they're not necessarily a rebuilding situation if they decide to go forward with this kind of core that they've assembled, but they're pretty young and pretty green. And oh, by the way, like, I don't know how much better Zach Levine is as just like uh, a person to work with than Russell Westbrook. I think Donovan's a culture guy. Like I can buy him as like, he's a real nice dude, pretty solid guy. Everyone likes him. Young team needs discipline and stability. But yeah, to me, if I was like a playoff team, I wouldn't really want him. So for all this talk of like, oh man, Billy Donovan really coached up some underachievers. The last four years, he's had Russell Westbrook, Victor Oladipo, Paul George, and Chris Paul in some combination. That's a lot of talent. And he's gone seven and 16 in those four years. Some of that's on the coach. I mean, I think in this, this, this Rocket series, you saw that. He kept playing Steven Adams. He never started Dennis Schroeder. It's just like basic matchup stuff he didn't really do. So for me, if I was like hiring Donovan, it's like hiring him for a young team that's getting better. I don't think he's like a finishing piece for a team. Yeah, I think his, his track record during those years should basically disqualify him for the Sixers job specifically because so much of his time with the Thunder especially his overlap with Russell Westbrook, was his inability to get Russell Westbrook to do things that Russ did not want to do or to stop doing things that Russ did want to do. And now you're dropping him into the Sixers where Brett Brown has been trying for years to get Ben Simmons to shoot jumpers, for years to get Joel Embiid to take conditioning and stuff more seriously. That's not a fit to me. I think there are a lot of jobs out there. I think Billy Donovan's a good coach. He's just in the the like comfortable uh, bloated center of the bell curve in terms of NBA coaches, right? Like most of these guys who are in the league, who have done, you know, been on playoff teams, they're good coaches. They're not just, they're just not going to change your world. Yeah, I think it's interesting though, because the Thunder, it seems like they've all but waved the white flag on this team. I, I'm, a, I'm a little disappointed there because I think there are ways considering how many long-term assets they have, how many first-round draft picks, and Trucks, you wrote about this pretty recently, just this team almost seems set up to be able to have their cake and eat it too, to be able to continue forward with this core of Chris Paul, some of these veterans, slowly bring around around SGA and bring these draft picks in. My guess, this is purely speculation. It's going back to what Ethan said earlier about this NBA is a star-driven league. I My guess would be Chris Paul asked him to trade him. He said, I came here for a year. I did my time, rebuilt my value. You'll get trade picks for me. But we're not going to win a championship, obviously. I want to win a title. I think, like, looking back on it, he left Houston for the same reason. He said, because if you remember those, those uh, leaked things, the first thing was that Chris Paul wanted out, much as Harden wanted him out. I think, and Houston, Chris Paul said, Harden's not good enough. We're never winning. The style of play sucks. Get me out of here. He gets to OKC, has a good year. He says, I've done my part. Let me go play with Giannis or Ben Simmons. Let me just get out of here now. Yeah, I mean, he has played the role of a good of good soldier. I think we all expected this to blow up much sooner, so I could definitely see where that happens. I think it, the, then the the questions become: if Chris definitely wants out, what happens to some of these other guys? What happens to Gallo? As we mentioned, he's a free agent, but Schroeder is or was a leading candidate for Sixth Man of the Year. Ultimately, went to, went to Montrez Harrell, but like they have some veterans here that they can move. Do you see, Rob, any place for Schroeder on another contending team? Or is he the type of guy at this point that you could kind of like plug and play him into most teams? Because he's almost like a like a, a rich man's Jamal Crawford in a, lot, in a lot of ways sometimes. Yeah, he seems like the kind of player to me who we're going to be talking about at next season's trade deadline. There's some contender looking to bump up to get over the top to, you know, maneuver within their, their conference. That's a guy who I think could be in that mix. And I mean, Schroeder looked really explosive this year. I think, you know, more so than I've ever seen him in his career, just blowing by guys more dangerous as a score and more controlled as a score than he's ever been. I think there's going to be a lot of appeal for a guy like that. You know, I would love him like on the Lakers. Like that would be nasty to get shooter on a team like that. Yeah. I do think the more we talk about this though, if the Thunder are becoming more and more the natural partners for the Sixers, like if you are Sam Presti, and you see that Tobias Harris is becoming, let's say, a little bit undervalued or underrated because of how much he makes is probably the better way of saying that. Like, is there a way to get him in and then just dump all of your contracts onto the Sixers on a team that is looking to make moves immediately in order to get back future value? I mean, it gets into the question almost like how much money are the the Thunder ownership 
is it willing to accept? But I don't know. It seems like there's like, it would serve both parties there. Am I wrong? Well, this is also kind of the the flip side if you're Tobias Harris of taking a contract like the one he did, which get your money by all means. That's item item 1A on the agenda, get paid. But the, the cost of that is it kind of sets you up to be like the filler score on a bad team to get flipped for some kind of star down the line. Like his salary, he's getting paid like a star and not producing like a star on a desperate franchise, like a, a really desperate franchise that needs to show, needs to have some positive momentum. That seems like his future to me, unfortunately, for Tobias, is to get traded to a Thunder, to one of these other transitional teams who can are willing to take on that salary. And Justin, I think you hit it. That's the big question mark in a pandemic NBA. Which ownership groups are willing to take on Tobias Harris's contract? Well, I mean, how many picks you to get, right? I mean, you can get <laughs> a lot of picks for that. Yeah, I, I think it, it's also interesting because these are two of the only teams who have doled out or have so many bad big money contracts <laughs> like Tobias, Al Horford, Steven Adams is still on the books for 28 million next year. That's like, I don't know who is accepting that unless you're attaching some future assets in order to get off. I don't Steven know. Adams, sudden, Steven Adams, by the way, a perfect example of the kind of center we were kind of talking around earlier as a guy who's just been kind of left behind by the transitions of the NBA. Yeah. It would be interesting to see him latch on to another contender. Like, Maybe he still has something as like just a smart backup big man. Like, yeah, ultimately, like maybe he would be the the right sort of guy you want behind Joel Embiid. He doesn't have to be available all the time, uh, but you know he could man some of those minutes and he could do a little bit more than you w- you would expect from I don't know Jakar Sampson or someone. It's kind of like uh, Dwight Howard, right? Dwight Howard at one million is a great value. Dwight Howard at thirty million, not so much. Right, right. That makes sense. All right. Um, well, speaking of the Lakers, thank you, Sharks, for setting us up brilliantly. Uh, the Lakers won last night's game, uh, 112 to 102. They're now up on the Rockets 2-1 in this series. That seemed like it was going to, at a certain point, tilt toward the Rockets. The Rockets won that big game one. And then all of a sudden, you can't stop Markeith Morris. And now you cannot stop playoff Rondo. Uh, Rondo was brilliant last night. Let's just get that out of the way. 21 points, nine assists, played really good defense on James Harden, some of these other guys. I ultimately think, though, like that this is the longest con the NBA has going right now, (laughs) where Rondo plays so poorly in the regular season. And he has for several seasons, even during that season with the Pelicans. Like you talk to anyone who watched that team closely, some of the defensive mistakes he would make during the regular season were just like atrocious and they just never got better. And he has this long history now of getting up for national TV games, TNT Bulls, national TV Rondo, playoff Rondo. Like, can he just not play well all the time? (laughs) Like, it's great that he's showing up in these big moments, but why can't he do this all the time? Am I wrong? Sharks? I mean, as long as you do it when it matters, right? I'm looking at his numbers, 40% from three the last two playoffs, right? If you make it when it matters and you're on a good team, more power to you, I guess. I, th- I think, you know, th- this game in particular, I think kind of illustrated what his value is, which is that he's just so different from so many other players. Like James Harden just seemed caught off guard by the way he defended more than anything. You know, the Lakers mixed in some zone stuff and Rondo would just kind of poke the ball away at times that Harden wasn't expecting. Like he was playing really good intuitive defense. Now you stretch that out over 85 games and counting all of a sudden, like all of his weird gambles, his timing stuff, like it doesn't play quite as well. I think you know, when we talk about playoff Rondo or TNT, the TNT Bulls or whatever, what we're talking about is a player who's really good in small sample sizes. And over a long <laughs> enough stretch, will irritate the players on his team, will alienate his coaches, and will be picked apart by teams that know how to attack him. But you know what it reminds me right now? The way he's playing, I'm not saying he's this guy, but he's filling the same role Jason Kidd had for the Mavs back in the day. When he was mm. this big, older point guard, yep. could spot up off the ball, guard positions, multiple positions. But can he shoot consistently over the next three weeks? I, I can't believe that he can, but if he can, then he got something real here. Which makes it even funnier than when the Mavs brought him in to be their next Jason Kidd at point guard. <laughs> he just detonated one of the best offenses in NBA history. How long ago was that? Like, what a wild career that Rondo has as this like undervalued guy on this Boston Celtics championship team ultimately becomes a guy who could like stand up to any superstar in the league, has these big playoff games, has these big games on national TV. 
And then he's had this extended, almost like probably half his career at this point, is the guy that no one really wants, but you kind of have to put him in there because you know you get games like we had last night. Like he was on the Mavs, he was on the Kings, he was on the Pelicans, he was on the Bulls, he was on the Lakers. <laughs> like this is like yeah. half of his career at this point. I, I can't think of another player like this except for like maybe Dwight. Is Dwight the only like really comp we have here? Also a Laker. <laughs> also a Laker. I mean, all right, this is a good question about the Lakers though because it does feel like they're getting into these situations and we kind of expected this where they have two incredible players. And when they're used properly, when they're engaged, when everything's going on, like they're as exactly what we expected them to be. LeBron had four blocks last night. And I do wonder, and I kind of want to talk about this later, but like how much he can be more engaged on the defensive end in these smaller lineups. But they're kind of like, it's almost like you're playing Yahtzee and you're just like rolling multiple dice at the same time. And you just need one of them to come up in a positive with all of these other role players. And so on the one hand, I do wonder if that's an underrated strategy that you have so many good players who like one out of 10, you could times would, would be a helpful third player. But on the other hand, like that seems like a very risky and uh, unsound mathematically, like 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 uh, proposition to really base your championship quest on, but it's worked so far. Question mark. I don't know. That's kind of the two-star model, right? Is you're betting on a cast of role players to all have their night. And in the first half, I don't know, it didn't look that great. Like like LeBron and AD were dominant. And then you were looking, you know, throughout the rest of the roster, I think the rest of the roster combined had something like 18 points in the first half. It was a lot of like two points for this guy, four points for that guy. Uh, Danny Green, again, has been kind of invisible. Kyle Kuzma wasn't really locked into the game yet. And then in the second half, I mean, I, I think what we're getting down to is it works if your stars are AD and LeBron. If your stars are anyone else, the two-star model can be a little bit suspect unless those role guys are just really good. I mean, I think for me, if I'm Houston, if Rondo beats me, if Markeith beats me, then so be it. Like, I lost. I think if you're Houston, you just live with it. Yeah, and this brings up kind of a, an ancillary discussion, perhaps maybe even the bigger one. What exactly has happened to Danny Green in the playoffs? I know that he like floats in and out and he's older for sure, but they really need him to be the third guy. All this talk about Kuzma and playoff Rondo and all this other bullshit. They signed him to be the third guy. And I do wonder if like the deciding move of the Lakers Clippers kind of rivalry and just like this big clash is that Kawhi took so long that the Lakers could only get Danny Green as their third guy. That's a real power move. <laughs> That's like, I don't know how conscious that was of a decision, but he really put them in the situation where they need Danny Green most of the time. Well, he was a good fit conceptually and coming off of, you know, like he wasn't perfect for the Raptors, but it was a really important piece of that team. And if you think about what do you need if we're going to run kind of a point guard light team where LeBron's going to have to do a lot of playmaking and we're, you know, we're relying on guys like Avery Bradley to fill in minutes at the point who, again, they don't have right now. You need a perimeter defender who can guard point guards. You need a guy who can hit shots. You need a guy who, uh, you know, can still be impactful in the transition game defensively. He's just been such a non-factor, especially on offense, but even on defense where Harden has been kind of walking around him at times, like his element of you know, his involvement in some of their double teams wasn't really that impactful. I'm not quite ready to like box up Danny Green and put him in the attic just yet, but I'm I'm kind of thinking about it, which is not where you want to be if you're the Lakers on your way to a potential championship run. I mean, I will say like I'm looking at his numbers from last year. So game six and seven against Philly combined for 10 points. Game five and six against Milwaukee, zero points. He averaged three points game in that series against Milwaukee. I cannot say I trust him. He could do well against the Clippers, but I don't trust him either. You know what this is setting up for? Playoff Danny. He, he sucks so much that all of a sudden he hits a couple threes. He hits six threes like he did in that NBA Finals. We're like, Finals MVP Danny Green, which is like the most ridiculous conversation uh, we've had. But I think it's funny. If you go back to like when you play with LeBron, literally your whole job is to hit wide open threes with no one around you and you're a hero. That's all you have to do. So hopefully one of these fools can do it. It's so hard and yeah, it, it seems like it's so hard to actually find these guys when he's actually on these teams. Um, we'll see what happens here. But I, I do want to talk about the Rockets briefly. It seemed really encouraging their start. And at times, even in these losses, it seemed like they would, might be able to flip the Lakers and, and turn the series more into a Rocket series. 
uh, Rob, are you worried now, based on how things are going, that the Rockets might be cooked a little bit? Well, I mean, it's worrisome that we don't really know what's going on with Daniel House and if he's going to be available going forward, considering this is a team that could really only trust six or seven guys in the rotation to begin with, and now you take one of them out, that hurts. But also to get kind of what's on the better end of the spectrum in terms of cases for a Russell Westbrook shooting game, you know, 13 of 24 from the field, made half his threes, and the Rockets lose. Like, that, like if you can't win under those circumstances, it's going to be hard to beat the Lakers, period. Yeah, to me, I go back, like, once the Lakers went small and got rid of their big men, it just became almost a matter of, like, two-on-two were shooters. If you have Westbrook and Harden, and I have LeBron and Davis, I feel pretty confident about my chances. Yeah, I really thought that Tucker, and I know this was a conversation around game one, that Tucker would have been the the best possible guy to go up against AD. Because dating back to Suns and, and Pelicans territory, the bigger wings, Draymond, PJ, were always the guys that gave AD trouble. I think he's actually, because he's not as physical a player as you probably expect him to be, these are the type of guys who can move with him, who can get in front of him, and all of a sudden he's like pulling up for for jumpers. And I guess to bring us back to the the playoff Rondo conversation, I do feel like having that accelerant for AD has almost been able to unlock his best basketball. Yeah, they're playing in smaller lineups, and that's obviously a big part of it. But AD, I mean, I've, I've talked about this a lot, so I won't belabor it, but like he needs someone else to set him up. And if you look back throughout the course of his career, he's played with a lot of pass for, for his point guards. And I think like he's used to it, and I think... Well, it's not an ideal situation for your point guard not to be able to shoot threes. I think it's it, it, it works to a certain extent. Like Tim Frazier was the starting point guard next to Anthony Davis for a very long time. Drew Holiday was first groomed to be more of a, a pick and roll point guard with Anthony Davis before he kind of swung into this weird like combo guard defensive juggernaut sort of guy. And so I do feel like there are times where I, I watch Rondo connect with AD and I'm like, that's that works and it worked for the Pelicans and it's working again. Justin, playoff Rondo shoots threes. Let's let's catch up here. He's, he's, he's stroking threes now. Come on. I know. Well, th- there's an example of a guy who can hit the wide, wide, wide open threes that playing with LeBron or AD creates, apparently. I mean, t- that's the thing about Rondo is like, his percentages in the playoffs are always tempered by that fact, that there is no one within three counties of him, and he, he hits a pretty good percentage on those shots, and you need to game plan for him that way. Like, Run at him a little bit. Jab at him a little bit. Make him think. Like, he's a really cerebral player. And the way you fight cerebral players sometimes is to get them them to overthink. You know, you want to put something in the back of their head where it turns the gear that then makes them think about the option on the other side of the floor. I mean, this isn't all that different than Lou Dort. You know, you give someone the open shots, which seems to be like the Rockets, as we know, like are going to these extreme styles. Like, it seems like they're willing to give those shots to the players that they think won't hit them just statistically. But in a short series, I wonder if that's almost like too bold of a strategy, especially when like guys start to hit them like and you don't adjust to it. Well, speaking of the Lou Dort comparisons, which is now the highest form of flattery we have. PJ <laughs> uh, <laughs> P- Tucker's d- like defense in isolation is basically at Lou Dort levels over this whole playoffs. And Lou he's defending Dort guys levels. like AD. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> for for one thing, Lou Dort did an amazing job against Harden. Tucker, I think, is giving the Rockets everything they need from him. And guys like Covington have been really good. Eric Gordon's been a little spotty, but he's had his moments. That, I mean, that's what concerns me if I'm Houston. Is like if you're getting these other factors to break your way, you have to win these these games that are that are there for you in the fourth quarter. And yet they just haven't been able to pull that off. I think one thing to watch for Houston, I, I blogged about this morning, is like Westbrook only took two free throws last night, or three maybe. He's got to get to the free throw line more. He's not going to be shooting threes. He needs to be more efficient. Westbrook should be getting like seven, eight, three free throws a game if they're going to win, I think. What happened there in terms of Westbrook's ability to create contact? Because you know he was making layups last night, which is helpful. He has not been particularly great around the rim on, in terms of contested looks in general. But he, I mean, he's, he's fallen to the ground a lot. He's doing the usual things that Russell Westbrook does. I wonder if just that little bit of sapped athleticism of explosion... Yeah, like teams just don't have to be as as physical or foul him in quite the same way because it really does seem like he doesn't get to the line as much. I mean, part of it's had been guarded by Anthony Davis. Yeah. Like, AD, give him some props. He's shutting on Russell Westbrook, playing the five. He's doing what he has to do, and he's doing it well. Well, and to take away a little bit from Anthony Davis, it doesn't seem like he has any idea what to do with James Harden when he drives. Like, you see these guys who, you know, for whatever reason, a particular big man kind of gets the timing of a guard as, he, as he's driving. Anthony Davis 
does not get James Harden. Like there's a there's a clear disconnect there in terms of contesting Harden's drives, which is when Houston has looked the best. When I mean Harden has gotten some stuff where he's just walking through the middle of the paint for layups and dunks at times. Okay. I gotta ask Rob, like if you're Houston, at some point do you bench Westbrook? Can you do it? Get 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 more shooting on Harden? I don't think so because you, you can't you can't put that glass back together once you break it. You know, like like once you bench him, Westbrook to me, just this is just me kind of guessing from outside, seems like the kind of guy you are losing completely if you bench him. Like just mentally is not gonna be plugged into the series in the same way. So you almost have to ride it out with him. I mean, that's that's the West Russell Westbrook conundrum. Yeah, I do wonder if you don't have Daniel House. Who are you turning to in these situations for an extra like three point shooting? You also don't have Tyson Chandler, so you don't have <laughs> crucial like ec- extra style and nose rings and guys who could hit two free throws. There will be no club. Tyson slander on this pod. None. <laughs> Not having it. He's a legend. He's, He's a Dallas Stanford. legend. He's almost as is popular on this podcast as Lou Dort. <laughs> um. All right, that's a good place to end it. Always good to, to end on a Lou Dort note. No. Um. That, that'll be it for us. We'll be back next week. Uh, thank you to Sasha. Thank you to Rob and Charks. And thank you to Steve Allman, who has been producing us for the past couple episodes, but I believe this is his, hey, his shout last out run Steve. here. Steve is, is going on to the connect. He's going on to, to, the be, to a better place. Um, all right, that's it for us. Uh, we'll be back next week. Until next time, see you later. Basketball is very good.